Thank you so much for that. God is good, and we are starting to see that goodness and that greatness. And we have been declared righteous uh, in God's eyes by faith in Jesus. And what I personally am really loving about this study is... um, What I'm really loving about this study is that... uh, Paul, obviously led by the Spirit, is covering so many aspects about our connection with God, our relationship with God. There's this deep connection. And I'm starting to look at it through different eyes because of the, what the cost was, what the price was. And we, and we think about that a lot. But if you've ever longed for a relationship with your Maker, if you've ever really wanted to understand how that came about, what that means, what that entails... Paul is doing such an incredible job of that. And not just our uh, connection with our Creator, but I think ultimately this universal concept that he's really talking about is what happens when I find another person that also has a connection to their Maker in that way. What does that mean for us? That's ultimately the argument that he's been making up until this uh, point. Uh, and what it really made me think of was First John 4. What I love uh, about God's creation and about studying the Bible and talking with other people is all of the patterns that you see. And God is so consistent across the board that we continually see the patterns of things like grace, things like loving one another because we love God, God loving us. And that kind of thing. And that made me think of 1 John 4. And I've asked Paul to read 1 John 4, 7 through 16. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And this is the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is the love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we have known and have believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Thank you so much. John there almost teeters on that concept of semantic satiation, right? We see the term love over and over and over again until it almost starts. But what I absolutely love about this is he's saying the exact same thing as Paul in a completely different nuanced way. It's the same thing. It's the same spirit talking about the same connection that we have with God and with others that also have that connection to God. And so we get this concept where Paul is making the argument that because Abraham was justified by faith, we are all justified by faith, and it becomes this new kingdom with a new citizenship that doesn't rely on the law, doesn't rely, but, but relies on faith. And then you see John saying the same thing about this connection that we have. Because God loved us, 
we love because he first loved us. Moving down to verse 19. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he uh, has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And Paul has been, once again, saying the same pattern thing with different examples and different nuance. So we now have peace with God. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 5. It says, um, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, the thing that he's been talking about all uh, through chapter 4, and what we talked about in the last class, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that for just a moment. What does it mean, and I will ask you to respond to this, but I'll give you a second to think. What does that mean to have peace with God? I know that I get a peace that surpasses understanding because I have confidence in God and his ability to protect and to save and redeem and all that kind of stuff. But at a larger level, what do you think it means to have peace, to make peace with God? He comforts you. He comforts you? Very good. Yes, very much. Very good. We were enemies, and we were reconciled. And I really do think that that is going to be a common theme that we see tonight, is this concept of actively being, hating, wanting to kill, being in the wrong, those kind of things, and being redeemed. And we'll talk about that in this morning. As the Hebrew writer says, we have confidence to enter in. That's Very good. I think about... Um, Obviously, as a sixth grader, I think, was it? No, it was much younger than that. But the war in Iraq was the first, like, concept that I had as a kid about uh, war, right? War in the Middle East and that kind of thing. And to a young kid, that's a pretty scary prospect, right? And, and the, the overarching theme is we, we need, we're trying to strive for peace and all that kind of thing. And you, you think about what goes into warfare, and you think about the bloodshed and all of that kind of thing and, and what, pri- what peace means in that scenario, right? Now think of God as an enemy. And we were enemies to God. But we, through Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, we've made peace. Uh, and, and I love that concept. And God has demonstrated... Uh, this by offering his son. We had, I had a sidebar conversation with Luke after class, and he mentioned the term cheap grace. I had never heard of that term before. Uh, it was apparently a German theologian that had kind of, I think it was like in the 30s, that had written a book that had kind of given rise to this concept of cheap grace. And there's a couple of things in there, um, like... You know, there, there was a movement there for a while where people were like, well, I am saved, so it doesn't matter what I do because grace is free, and right? Like, there's no responsibility on the individual. What really struck me, though, was this concept of, have you ever had a debt removed? We, we understand that concept. A bill has forgiven. Um, but let's say you commit a wrong and you're sentenced in court, you go to court, and you had, maybe you had stolen, right? Because you were destitute, you were poor, 
uh, your what, what have you. And the judge not only dismisses the charges, but offers you a new house and a lot of money. That is a very small fraction, obviously, of what we see in God. But the idea of cheap grace is just this idea, well, I'll forget the transgression. And that's it. That's not what God is doing. We have peace, and we have been declared righteous. Um, And so this idea is, I'm not only going to justify the action, I'm going to justify the person. Now, I, as an individual, stand before God righteous in his eyes because of his grace. Not that it just, not that the bad was overlooked, but that now I'm a good person in the eyes of God because of that. So, uh, before we get started tonight, I've got a couple of questions. I will confess that my questions were not worded so well this time, uh, so we may have to we may have to um, adjust those as we go. Uh, and there is a reason behind a couple of these questions in the beginning. It's to kind of build up. But the question number one uh, was, is grace a hard concept to accept? It's very broad and poorly worded. But work through it in the sense of, what does grace mean to you? How does that apply to you? Is that concept a hard thing to accept? Yeah, it seems that one of the things is it's hard for us to measure that in other people. Okay. Oh, interesting. So yeah. it's so much easier to measure obedience and rookie okay. box checking. But if we allow grace in there, I don't know your heart. And now it's, it's hard to justify or accept or condemn. But the other way is so much easier. I can see what you do. Yes. Yes. Very good. And you're hitting on a really important aspect here too, right? Like, because what I'm doing then is like, I can see that and I can kind of put my hands around it and measure it and all that kind of stuff. That makes it an easier concept if I look at grace in that fashion. Uh, Yeah. Okay, this is coming from different area as far as you know about grace. It's hard to accept grace mm-hmm. yes. because of we're so independent. We are brought up, raised for the most part, thinking, okay, I've got to do this. Mm-hmm. I've got to be in control. You know, that's my job to take care of myself. Well, to allow grace in, you've got to put that aside. Because you can't do anything. Right, right. You're totally dependent upon Him. And and so, it's hard to get rid of the mindset of independence. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Very good. And And it kind of bounces. I'm glad I'm seeing a theme here, because I'm about to touch on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the trick is getting to the point where you realize that you have nothing to offer. Uh, we, we want to be able to uh, pull ourselves out of our bootstraps. Um, and even when we accept grace, that thinking 
feedback in, um, yeah. meaning that we can do something to earn it, to be, uh, you know, have something to contribute to the relationship. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's not great. Excellent. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I like that that was the way that that was phrased too, is like the real trick is accepting that you have nothing to offer. The very, very best that you have to offer still isn't enough. Yeah. I find it hard to accept grace because I feel so unworthy that I just, I'm not worth that kind of gift mm-hmm. in my mind. It's hard to think that, but I'm told that it's there for me. But it's just, I find it hard because of the self-worth. Absolutely. Very good. And so what the theme that you see in all of these answers is that it is unnatural to get something for nothing. Right. And maybe even if you have to kind of justify it in your mind, well, I was kind of like the Pharisees. Well, I'm good enough. Right. That's a very transactional nature. And Chris has used this term a lot. I like it. The commoditization of salvation where things become a, a, a transaction. Well, I've, I've gotten something. Uh, and that means that I must have had to pay for it. Um, and this, this was kind of an open-ended question. And one of the things that I think is not hard to accept is sin and death. Those are very easy things to, to, uh, to grasp. When you go back to kind of what Chris was talking about, it, obviously we have to, the closer we are to, to handling and measuring something, the, the easier it is to accept. And Ryan kind of making the point that we have a tendency to move in that direction when there's something that we don't understand. Unfortunately, moving in that direction kind of nullifies what grace is all about. I say all of that to say, why do you think Paul is taking so much time to explain this grace through faith? I think the Spirit understands. It's really easy for me to understand sin and death, but man, it's kind of hard to really lay into that concept of grace, really lay into more the idea that I have nothing to offer for this gift. A lot of times it can be difficult to accept grace can be proposed. Um, I think like Adam said, it was overwhelming to see our sins of sin and the mercy that he shows. There are a lot of that show that grace is pretty easy to accept when it's us. It's difficult to accept when it's somebody else. Mm-hmm. And we see that, for example, with Jonah. And Jonah had no problem with grace being shown him when he runs out this direction and Jonah too, and he's thankful for salvation, but he doesn't want that extended to Nineveh. Yeah. And if any of us had seen what Nineveh would have done, we would have had problems with that too. I mean, it certainly not like we did destroy it mm-hmm. because of the rebellion. And then in Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16, everyone had agreed to work for Daenerys. But when they saw others yep. who received the Daenerys for only an hour of work, they were disappointed that they didn't get more. And they were glad to have grace themselves. But they didn't want to extend it to others. The same thing as in Luke 15 about the older brother. And so 
There are ways yeah. which is difficult. Yeah. But the more difficult part is to see someone who has lived a much more sinful life becoming forgiven. I think that's an excellent, uh, excellent statement because it does tie into exactly what we're talking about between the Jews and the Gentiles. Right? And they can accept the, the, uh, the redemption of God through the law and that kind of thing, but they look across the other side of the room, but they shouldn't be allowed. They, yeah, that side, sorry. <laughs> they shouldn't be allowed, uh, which I think is so very, very good. I got a couple of comments over here. Very good. And I, I, as I was kind of looking at this and kind of looking at, obviously, we know what the term grace means. Um, uh, you know, this idea of joyful, cheerful, or mercy in, in that sense. I guess there are sometimes 
at that level, it's one thing for me to be forgiven of my sins. But grace says that I make God happy. That, for me, that blows my mind, right? Because I was kind of raised in a situation where it was really difficult to make God happy. And it is impossible to make him happy of something that you have to offer, right? It is impossible to do that. Um, And one of the things, I don't want to kind of give it away, but this concept of of how much greater, right, God is than than we can consider. So let's, uh, very good comments, let's move on with that. And so grace might be hard to accept because we feel like we have, we need to give something to get something. And coming to grips with the fact that we really can't offer anything is very difficult for us. Okay, question number two, another poorly worded question. It's a more of a loose question, and I wasn't intending to talk about what makes Adam a type of Christ, because we will cover that in the, the, this class, but why does Paul use Adam as a type of Christ? Why is it Adam that he uses as a type of Christ? Maybe it's a rhetorical question, uh, but um, I, I'm still laying some, some guidance here. I think because to Adam Eve, that sin entered into the world. Uh, and when sin entered into the world, there was nothing there to take it out. Christ, on the other hand, enters into the world without sin and takes away that sin for everybody else. And, and so, representatively, it came in through Adam and goes out through Christ. Mm-hmm. Very good. Very good. Why else do you think Paul used Adam? We got two here, one here, and then. In its, in its most simplest form, we're looking at um, it's like over 600 ceremonial laws, right? And we're also looking at 10 commandments. And with Adam, it's very simple. It was one, and he was given authority and dominion. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Well said. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, there's probably several things. Adam being mankind representative, mm-hmm. the word itself, and mankind. And then universal. Kind of that line. Yes. The only man, or it was, it was all of Yes, yes. So, and the results are universal as well. So using that as Christ, which is universal. Perfect. Yep, uh, exactly. Both of what you guys said is really good. And Adam is the, the first of a thing, right? And, and thus his actions become representative downstream, right? Like you can either look at it in a very s- symbolic fashion or... <laughs> And it's one of those situations where it's both uh, symbolic and concrete at the same time. So, obviously, Adam is a prime candidate because he is the first of a thing, right? And and there's a lot of similarities. We're going to talk about those similarities in just a moment. Before we do that, let's go ahead and read Romans 5, uh, 12 down through the rest of the chapter. 
Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, uh, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not countered when there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so when you actually start chapter 5, it's interesting because um, he starts out, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And then you notice in verse 13, there's like a dash. He doesn't really finish his thought necessarily in this chapter. He kind of does this tangential, kind of like almost like as he was kind of thinking about this, it spawned all these other thoughts and they recorded those and that kind of thing. But what he's doing is he's building a picture. And I asked you in question... Uh, number three, as you read through this, read through it a couple of times, and what phrases or thoughts or ideas are repeated throughout this? Because once you kind of identify those, it, it makes this kind of shine a little bit brighter. So what, what were some of the repeat, repeating phrases um, or thoughts or ideas here in this, in this scripture? Uh, one for one. Okay. One for one. Say that one more time, Tommy. The words sin, sin, transgression, disobedience. I've got all the verses to this. Some of them 12 times. Yeah. Yes. And death, die, or death, or condemnation is used at least eight or nine times. And sin and death, but then the gift and life are also a couple of the very good, very good. Got one up here. This is only mentioned once again in this passage, but um, in verse 13, it says that uh, the sin is not reckoned. That seems like it might be a callback to chapter 4 about reckoning Abraham's faith as righteousness. So I see a contrast there between um, the law reckoning sin as death and God reckoning faith as righteousness. Very good, right? So starting to make the con connections between those and continuing to build on the connection that he's given examples for. Very good. 
um, a couple of times, the things that stood out to me is this thing is not like this thing. Did you notice that? Because that's said a couple of times. This thing is not like this thing. And that's always followed up with a, what is the difference? If this thing is not like this thing, how are they different? Much more. This thing is not like this thing much more. And so we have uh, sin entered the world. Uh, let's see, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result for the judgment following one trespass, but the free gift following many trespasses brought. One is not like the other. One is much, much more than the other. So this idea that, and, and back to your comment about it took one, right? And it kind of spoiled it for everyone, right? Like it wasn't, it was the symbolic act that the law could not, we cannot be right of our own behavior in God's eyes. But in contrast, the grace, what is it? How does it compare? It's much more than the thing that, uh, that represents the sin here. God's answer to sin is even better than we could have ever imagined. And it goes back to this concept of this cheap grace where it's not just forgiven. You're now my son. You're my adopted child. You're in my kingdom. You're a son of the king of this new thing. Yes. Make sure my notes aren't showing because we're about to go to Hebrews. And I love this concept so much because this is where, for me personally, grace starts to kind of sink in. It's not just this, well, you did this thing, so I'm going to wipe that away. It's, you did that, and I love you, and you make me happy. That is just crazy. Why would you do that after I was your enemy? Why would you do that? That's, that's what the natural man thinks. Why would you make me your friend when I've been trying to be your enemy? Because it's not like this. It's more. Much more. So let's go to Hebrews. There's a couple of times in Hebrews where we, where we get into this idea. I've got a couple of verses, chapter 1, 5 through 13, chapter 6, 13 through 20, and chapter 8, 1 through 6. So I've got three readings that I would love. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one thing that I, I know to share is, uh, you know, sin came through one man, uh, and it was pertaining to one trespass. You know, we pointed out one trespass. Right. Verse 20. Multiplies that. The law came to increase mm-hmm. the trespass. So it started out one, but finally it's another. It's growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. So it's huge. Because what is what? the purpose of the law? Yeah. Is to show those faults, show those sins. And where the one sin has grown so great, what does it take to get rid of that sin? One act of righteousness by the Son of God. Very good. Very good. I appreciate uh, you catch me on that one. 
Okay, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5 through 13. Can I get someone to read Hebrews 1, 5 through 13? Okay, Alan, thank you. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, he brings the firstborn into the world, and says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, and his ministers fly into the fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the bowl of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will hold them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which the angels of the air say, Sit in my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool for your feet. How far? That's good. Thank you. Yes. So we see the sun is, is better than the angels, right? Uh, and pointing out that the sun is better. And then if we go to Hebrews 6 and verse 13. Now when God made his promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you greatly and multiply your descendants abundantly. And so by preserving Abraham, and so by preserving, Abraham inherited the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and the oath serves as a confirmation to end all dispute. In the same way, God wanted to demonstrate more clearly to the heirs of the promise that his purpose was unchangeable. And so he intervened with an oath so that we who have found refuge in him may find strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us through two unchangeable things, since it is impossible for God to lie. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, sure and steadfast, which reaches inside behind the curtain where Jesus, our forerunner, entered on our behalf since he became a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And I wanted to read that because the entire, you know, chapter 7 goes into why this is a better priesthood than we've ever had. Because it's an everlasting priesthood. And so the son is better. It's a better priesthood. And in uh, chapter 8, verse 1 down through 6, now the main point of what we were saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that the Lord, not man, set up. For every high priest, high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So this one too had to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since, they are, uh, since there are already priests who offer the gift prescribed by the law. The place where they serve is a sketch and a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. Just as Moses was warned by God as he was uh, about to complete the tabernacle for, he says, see that you make uh, everything according to the design shown to you on the mountain. But now Jesus has obtained a superior ministry that since the covenant that he mandates is also better and enacted on better promises, better son, better priesthood, better covenant. 
Everything that God does is better than anything that you could do. And this idea of grace is that not only does he justify your actions, he justifies you in his eyes. You make him happy. And for me, that's a difficult thing to accept. Specifically, when you've known the grace and you stumble. I shouldn't be loved that much by God. I shouldn't make him happy. But because we have faith in Jesus Christ, we are made right in his eyes. And I love this concept. How much more? How much more? That's, that is what God is. How much more? And we can see this in all aspects of our own lives. We talked last time about Jesus saying, which one of you parents, if your child asks for food and you, you give them a scorpion or a snake or a stone, he's like, you guys are evil. You know how to give good gifts, but you're evil. How much more will God treat his children with care and compassion? So I, I really love um, what he's doing here uh, both obviously for the Jews and the Gentiles. And as we looked at in John, this is kind of this pattern of this universal kingdom. This, I was watching the, uh, um, oh, the Bible Project on Romans, and the term that they used I thought was kind of cool was this new humanity, right? Like we talk often about kingdom, but it's this new humanity, this new relationship and, uh, with not only God, but the relationship that we... Um, Share with others. Okay, very good. So if we if we head back to Romans five, we get a lot of comparisons about what made Adam uh, a type, uh, and there's just a lot of um, you know. Obviously, it's it's not things that are similar, but it is. It's the the things that are drastically similar and drastically different that really kind of draws out a shadow or a type uh, of, of something. Where else is Adam compared to Jesus? And for what purpose? Anybody remember? How about 1 Corinthians 15, 45? The first man Adam became a living being, the last man became a living being Will you do me a favor and read 42 through 49? We'll get some context around that, because you're right. Okay. <laughs> I know how that goes. <laughs> First Corinthians 15, 42. And if you recall, Paul is kind of talking about the resurrection here. And he says in verse 42, is that it is the same with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. While you're reading these, think about fleshly Adam and spiritual Jesus. Right? Sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown as a natural body, is raised as a spiritual body. If there is a natural uh, body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living person. The last Adam, I love that he actually refers to Jesus as the last Adam. What does that mean for us? Became a life-giving spirit. Why is, why is Jesus the last Adam? 
Does that mean an end to the human race? Adam represents, I mean, even means humankind. Those are pretty good. <laughs> it is the conclusion to the human problem, right? I love that he kind of calls that the last Adam because in Adam, all of this junk started. And Jesus, as the last Adam, represents the end to all of that. There's a lot more comparisons, like Adam was born of God, Jesus is born of God. Like, but Jesus also called the first fruits of this new humanity. I, I don't know of a better phrase for that, but I love that. And I love that he calls him the last Adam here, representing the... The death that came with sin, as we saw in Romans 5, as Bob had pointed out, that act of righteousness now removes that. And, um, you know, as he continues this discourse in 1 Corinthians 15, we get to the famous or often read verse about death has been swallowed up in victory. And the whole point is death had come through sin. And ultimately, life, life on this earth? No, not necessarily. Uh, life has come through Jesus so that death does not have a hold or a grip on us after we pass. You know, sometimes when we think of, of the death of Jesus on the cross, and we think of his phrase, it is finished, I think sometimes we have a tendency to look at, okay, that's the end of your law. But that's not what was finished. What was finished ties in with this last Adam, the life-giving spirit. So the remediation for what Adam did is finished. Yeah, yeah. Very good. You know, and Paul, (laughs) he points out that sin was in the world before the law was given, right? The Jews are obviously focused on the law as their mechanic to be right with God. That is understandable because the law was given. And Paul is making the broader argument that the moment sin entered the world, right? Like the law in a very philosophical sense, not the Torah sense, but the philosophical sense was broken to the point that we can't have a relationship with God or be right in his eyes because we've broken the law. Death is a result. Death spread to all people because all sinned. Final question that I have for you is, Paul says, so death spread to all people because all sinned in verse 12. Who is he talking about here? I don't think Paul was trying to answer a theological argument at the time. So what was he talking about? All have sinned was used previously, correct? 
in the last chapter. How did you take it? What did you think it meant then? All have sinned. When you read it in chapter 4, what does it mean to you? Does it mean finitely every living creature? I mean, because if that's the case, then Jesus has to be included in that. We know that's not true. So, what is he talking about? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yeah, and I don't think it was meant to kind of spawn this argument, like, well, is that, what about babies? And right, like, because that's kind of where we get this idea, like, are children, do children die because they have sinned? Right? He's trying to make a universal, <laughs> a universal argument about when man is of free will, what does man do? Man does his own thing. And that is in contrast to the way that God wants him to act. And so all sin. And so what is the penalty for all men sinning? Death has come into the world. And death reigned from Adam until Moses. Even those who didn't sin in the same way Adam did. But the gracious gift is not like the transgression. I love that. For if the many died through the transgression of one man, how much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, multiply to many. So much more. And that one man killed the world and everything downstream. One man offered life to everything. And how, um, how that gift is not like, how this thing is not like the other thing, but so much more. <coughs> Consequently, just as condemnation for all people came through one transgression, so too through the one righteous act came righteousness leading to life for all people. I love this idea for me. There's a couple of things to recap. Um, is this idea of our ability to make God happy. right? And that's not because of the things we do. It's because of the price that he offered um, to, to make peace with him. And then this concept of grace taking on such a deep, rich thing that whenever it's used, it's always far greater than the transgression, right? It's not a, it's not a transaction. Once again, it's not a transactional thing. The result is always greater than the, than the transgression. And ultimately, the argument that he's making in the focal point, which maybe I've been, uh, uh, haven't been emphasizing enough is that that focal point is Jesus. Jesus is the reason for that connection to God. And when I think of the term covenant, in my brain I've been using connection. Right? Uh, that's me. I'm not <laughs> saying you have to do that. But Jesus is the reason for that connection. God offering, Jesus obeying, all of those parts leading up to the fact that I can make God happy. And that seems like an impossible thing, but it is not an impossible thing through Jesus. I want to say something about what Alan said earlier about realizing you're a wicked person that deserves a grace. And the funny thing about us sitting 
Right. And our way out of that situation. Yeah, absolutely. Very good, very good, Brett. Um, so I don't want to derail the conversation, maybe two minutes to be derailing, but, or, or, or like hijack, you know, what? Well, you got about 30 seconds, I'm guessing, right. so. <laughs> um, so, uh, this, so there's this idea of like sinful nature. Um, right. And it seems like this passage, um, is kind of speaks to it more than some others, right? And, um, at least this is kind of where I go to try and make sense of that. Uh, to me, um, I think the question is sometimes, do you sin because you're a sinner, or are you a sinner because you sin, right? And that's kind of the, are you sin, do you have sinful nature, so therefore you're going to sin? And here, it says death spreads to all people, um, because of all sin, right? So um, I was curious, um, maybe we can go from here and have a sidebar or whatever about, is this passage even trying, does it shed any light on that question at all? Or, uh, you know, what word? I, I believe that to make the argument that he is making, he's speaking a little bit in universalities, right? Because a child child or children die not because of a sin that they commit or even that they're guilty of a thing but because sin entered the world right and i think there's a difference between there and coming to the conclusion that i as a free moral agent i might make it 99 percent of the way but the moment that i stumble it's broken right the relationship is broken and so um I had listened to some of the, the classes that Tom Hamilton had done around this, and, and um, I would recommend those. I may send you a link, because he does get into that a little bit. Once again, like, when you say all people, right, there is some things that you have to omit from that, just simply, but I think the universal concept of death was introduced. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, he's saying, because Jesus is the last Adam, death now no longer has power. Uh, and so there's this universal concept of death entering because of sin. Still, we're responsible for our actions. Kind of like minority report, <laughs> right? Like, like, do you imprison someone for the chance that you know they're going to do something wrong? Or is, does it happen like when they perform the action kind of thing? So that's a really great place to leave off, I know. <laughs> and maybe I'll let Chris take that for the next class. Thank you so much for your participation.